Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Tad Michaels. How severe is the homeless situation in Hamilton? There's tent encampments throughout the city. War 2's Jason Farr joins us to explain how he's willing to explore ways to help. Andrew Goldberg joins us for another round of pandemic employment talk. Today, we discuss if employees should expect to receive new contracts. 27% of employers say some staff have refused to return to work. And lastly, the Edmonton Eskimos are changing their name. They're temporarily changing to the Double E football team while they come up with a better one. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. What's going on as far as uh, the homeless situation? There's tent encampments throughout the city. On one end, here's Paul Johnson from the city with his take. While it is on the surface of it, you know, something that could be fairly easily done. You just say, hey, here's an area where you can. The impact of that in a public property perspective, uh, you know, has so many tentacles to it, not the least of which are uh, funding, staffing, who's going to support that, and what other bylaws would be removed from that. Now, he's talking about uh, sanctioned space for encampments. Now, staff lawyer for the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, Nadine Watson, said if you dismantle an encampment, the visual disappears, but you're going to have tents popping up in other areas. If you dismantle an encampment, the visual site of an encampment might disappear, but you'll just have individual tents popping up in other areas of the city, and that's exactly what's happening. Well, let's talk about that. Joining us uh, is uh, one of the people involved in this uh, conversation, the counselor, the esteemed counselor for War 2, uh, Mr. Jason Farr joins us. Mr. Farr, counselor, how are you, sir? Good morning, Ted Michaels. You know, weak. Oh, you cut out there, Jason. Hi, are you there? Can you hear me? Yeah, Ted? yeah, we're good. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, yeah, thank you for uh, discussing this. I appreciate it. It's certainly uh, top of mind for me and a number of my residents. Now, there has been, of course, uh, the conversations of what to do about uh, some of the encampments, including uh, the one that was outside First Ontario Centre, of course, on York Boulevard. Now, part of that was set up uh, because of uh, the COVID situation and giving people basically a chance to go inside if they didn't have a place to go. But I understand you'd be getting a lot of, uh, well, maybe not a lot of complaints, but you've been getting some, some people contacting you saying they're not too happy about that. Well, I, uh, yeah, for sure there's a growing number, I'm sure, with the attention received on CHML today, the Hamilton Spectator, I'll be hearing from uh, more businesses and more residents uh, on the other side of the issue, notwithstanding the good work that certain uh, agencies are doing, and, and, and a lot of them are volunteers. Others are, uh, you know, uh, uh, professionals who are, are outreach uh, workers and have been for some time and have been working closely with our staff. But the reality is, uh, yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we were ahead of the game uh, very early on in the COVID-19 crisis, and we opened up an NHL-sized hockey rink at First Ontario Centre, where it is still operating. And and uh, efficiently by our good friends at uh, Good Shepherd as a uh, men's uh, homeless shelter. There's still room in that shelter. However, it appears along York Street anyway, uh, with nine-tenths, my last count last night, that there are some individuals that would qualify to be indoors where all the facilities and the supports are, uh, prefer to sleep rough outdoors. And they're being supported, as I say, by a uh, uh, a couple of agencies in our city uh, where there's a, uh, you know, that, that, that is not a sanctioned um, outdoor encampment facility. There are no sanctions by the city of Hamilton or council 
outdoor uh, encampments in the city, and, and there's an even bigger one uh, that's a growing concern along Ferguson Avenue between Cannon and Barton Street, counted 22 tents, maybe 23 now, uh, there last night as well. So, so again, unsanctioned encampments, uh, they go against our current city policies, uh, notwithstanding we're obviously looking quite seriously at the issue, Ted. And in fact, today, um, looking at it seriously myself as uh, the elected official for the area where the issues uh, persist, I am talking to you from Kitchener-Waterloo, where just today, after a week's notice, they are dismantling an encampment here. And it's a tale of two cities, really. From this spot, I'll be heading to London, where during the COVID-19 crisis, they are actually permitting, outside their downtown core, uh, two encampments, uh, at least uh, temporarily, not uh, not for all time. Well, Jason, obviously uh, you've heard from a lot of people who, uh, I guess, um, are not happy with this. You you as a city, you, you just can't go in and bulldoze these, these areas down without uh, uh, having some sort of other recourse for these people. And, and, and we've proven in the past that we're quite effective at that. I mean, McDonald High School was an issue early on. Um, and, and we do it sensitively. We have, uh, with this encampment task force endorsed by council, uh, different protocols and, a, and an enormous amount of uh, support from both outside and inside city divisions. Um, obviously, each case is, is different. Uh, we have successfully navigated over 80 individuals that were living rough since the COVID-19 outbreak. We're going to successfully navigate more. I'm sure, uh, as it stands right now, though, our focus is York Street, our focus is uh, Ferguson, and uh, certainly a growing number of concerns from uh, residents and business people that are nearby particularly, but also those who pass by uh, have been sharing those concerns with my office and also staff. So, you know, it, it's uh, it's a very sensitive topic. It's one I, I, I you know, I seek to get, gain much better understanding uh, of. I, I really, truly despite being on opposite ends on this particular issue uh, with the two organizations, Ham Smart and uh, Keeping Six, on this particular issue, I do appreciate and understand where they're coming from. Following my tour today of Kitchener, where one encampment is being dismantled, and then uh, my focus will be on London, Ontario, in about an hour's time or two hours' time on how they manage uh, uh, permitted during the COVID-19 crisis encampments outside of their downtown, uh, I'll be even further educated. But I'm sensitive to it, as you've been reporting all morning, Ted, on CHML News. Uh, I, I am keeping very much an open mind on, on perhaps doing what London, Ontario has obviously done, uh, finding a location uh, that is more suitable, uh, that you know, not everyone, but hopefully more than what we're seeing now in Hamilton can agree upon. I don't know where that location is, as you are also rightly uh, 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 reporting, but maybe after today's uh, um, you know, tour that I'm taking, I'm, I'm, I might get some ideas. Jason, uh, just before we do wrap up, I know uh, you're short of time this morning. I guess the obvious question is now uh, we these people who, as you say, are living rough, who are living um, out, uh, 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 for example, outside First Ontario Centre or on Ferguson Avenue, what happens now, and this is uh, kind of a, you know, uh, a question that's out there, a rhetorical question, but what happens if you go to somebody and say, okay, we're going to uh, have you leave this area, but we do have a place for you to go. What happens if some people would say, you know what, I don't feel comfortable going there, I would much rather be on the street? Well, that's what they're saying, Ted. I mean, we do have opportunities. We've obviously uh, created opportunities for over 80 uh, folks living rough in our city since the COVID-19 crisis. It, it, this, this issue is not, you know, exclusive to this crisis. We've 
done good work with our partners prior to the crisis. We'll continue to do good work during and after. But um, you are hearing that. There are those reasons that you've been reporting, uh, one that I'm sure you especially uh, uh, very much appreciate. We have mental health issues. Uh, we have addictions issues. Um, we have, I guess, rules where, where, you know, shelters don't accommodate the kinds of lifestyles some of the folks who are living rough right now, who are receiving tent donations right now in our city, uh, have trouble with. And so it's their preference to be uh, on the street. And, and, you know, we have to be sensitive to that. We have been sensitive to that. We have been successful in navigating them to whether it's hotel rooms, whether it's shelters that we've made up, and you know, NHL size arenas, whether it's expanded shelter services uh, and other uh, resources that we've provided. Uh, you know, we... You know, for the most part, the story that maybe isn't being told is that, for, for the most part, we have been successful at relocating sensitively those that are sleeping rough right now. It is really a location thing for me right now, Ted. We have right in the center of our city, in our downtown, two growing encampments. And with the growing encampments comes, unfortunately, growing concerns. So I'm hoping my tour today I can learn some things speaking to some officials in both cities where they're taking two different approaches. One, the temporary encampments are permitted in London through the COVID-19 crisis and here in Kitchener right now, where a week ago they gave warning and in about a few minutes I'll be on site watching how sensitively they dismantled that site. That one is on private property, by the way, but both are located, uh, but, but it is located in the core. All right, Councillor for War Two, Jason Farr, uh, that uh, Kitchener thing that you'll be keeping an eye on, that is very, very interesting. Perhaps at some point we'll be checking in with you to find out exactly how that was handled. Thank you for the update. Uh, have yourself a great day and get all that research done so you can report back and let us know what's going on. Anytime, Ted. Thanks. All right, that's Councillor Ward uh, for War Two, Jason Farr. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. For the last little while on Wednesdays here on the Bill Kelly Show, we have been joined by the great people at Simfiro to Markin Employment Lawyer. Andrew Goldberg joins us. Andrew, first time I've had a chance to talk to you. First of all, good morning. Thank you for joining us. And are you staying safe and healthy, sir? Oh, as always. And uh, good morning to you as well. It's a pleasure to be back on. So let's, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm curious, over the last uh, 19 weeks, when this first started, the pandemic, everybody was kind of, you know, just kind of waiting to see what would happen. But have you found that you and your group have been a lot more busier or busier in the last few weeks as now people start getting back to work and they have more and more questions about what their employers can legally or not legally do? You know what? In all honesty, we have been absolutely slammed since the beginning. Wow. Um, that, that's remained consistent. Just a lot of the issues have changed, right? So when it first started, many of the issues dealt with people who were being put on a layoff or were having their wages cut. Um, you know, d- different things that were concerned at, at the very outset of the pandemic, where we're finding now more of the issues pertain to returning to work, uh, safety in the workplace. Uh, things of that nature. You know, a lot of people were on a temporary layoff. They're now being recalled. They want to know what their rights are. The employer's trying to give them new contracts and change their terms, things of that nature. So we're, we're extremely busy. We have been uh, since the beginning of March, um, more so than, you know, than ever. That said, just the, the issues just seem to change all the time as COVID evolves and the 
the government response continues to evolve as well. And by the way, if somebody has a question about employment law, the phone line is open. Uh, you can ask Andrew a question at 905-645-3221 or uh, on the cell at star 9900. Andrew, um, for the last 20 weeks or whatever, and I'm curious when I talk to other people in other industries, uh, how did the pandemic change the way, well, for example, you, the way that you personally do business and handle your clients? Well, obviously everything is remote. So, if, you know, from the, even at the outset of my um, dealing with an employee or an individual that has an employment issue, uh, you know, any consultations that I have, they're, they're obviously all remote now. I, I don't do anything in person, uh, whereas prior to the pandemic, I'd, I'd meet a lot of my clients in person at the office. Um, other than that, you know, even every step in the litigation process or in, in any of the legal process, processes that I'm undertaking, uh, everything is remote. So everything's over Zoom, everything's over teleconference. Um, there's just the, the, the main thing, of course, is just there's no physical uh, interaction with, with the people that you're working with, whether they're your clients, the other counsel on the other side, mediators, the court. Um, I guess that's for sure the big change. And Spending a lot less money on dry cleaning is the, <laughs> is the second one. So <laughs> that's that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> all right, so let's uh, let's start off first of all and talk about the latest poll from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. It suggests tensions are now flaring between workers and employers. Twenty-seven percent of the employers polled uh, have indicated that some of their layoff staff have refused to return. To work, and I'm sure that there's a myriad of reasons for that. Uh, does that number surprise you, Andrew? Uh, you know, I think all with all statistics, <clears throat> uh, they need to be taken with, with a grain of salt. So I, I think the stat here is they surveyed 27 percent of the employers. They they polled 27 percent of the 3,400 employers, and uh, amongst um, the responses they received from the relevant employees, I think it says that 62% of workers prefer to reserve, receive this rather this SIR benefit as opposed to return to work. Um, so, I mean, six out of every 10 people would rather get the CERB benefit than be at work. I mean, I think that number has to be taken with a grain of salt. That's not, you know, there tends to be a bias of, of people who respond to these surveys, the people who feel the strongest. So you, so you never know exactly. But that being said, it's still a very, very high number. It does surprise me to some degree that the number is that high. You would expect that there's a fair number of people out there who prefer to receive the CERB benefit than return to work. Um, I think the question is, you know, why is that more than anything? Why would they rather get the CERB benefit than return to work? And, and as you said, there could be a myriad of reasons as to why that might be the case. Now, legally, if, uh, for example, I worked for you and we come out of this pandemic and things start getting back to normal and you say, okay, Ted, you, you know, we have your position. You want to come back to work. We'd like you to join us. And I say to you, for whatever reason, no, I'm not comfortable and I would rather stay home and collect CERB. From an employer standpoint, what's their next recourse? Well, the first step from the employer standpoint is to find out why, okay? Because there are some reasons an employee can refuse to return to work that are legitimate, and there are some reasons that are not. So the reason that is not, to start off, is if you're just simply concerned with 
you know, generally with the health risks associated with COVID-19 as an employee and you prefer to be at home, that is not going to be enough to refuse a return to work, okay? So you as an employee need to have a very specific health issue um, that maybe makes you a higher risk to contract COVID-19 or to suffer from worse symptomology as a result of COVID-19. You would need a note from your physician stating that you cannot return to work at this time because of medical reasons, okay? And you would that would be necessary. And if you don't have that kind of medical documentation and support, you would have to return to work. Um, and then another reason, of course, a, a common reason is uh, child care obligations. If you have child care obligations, if you can't get uh, help for your young children, uh, you can't get them in daycare right now or, or someone else to watch them, that could be another valid reason why you can return, uh, why you can decline a return, uh, return to work offer. So if you're an employer, you do want to figure out off the bat why it is that the employee is refusing. And if they're taking the position that it's health-related or it's childcare-related or something of that nature, uh, you know, you, you want to find out more information. If it's health-related, get medical documentation as an employer. If it's childcare-related, you know, ask the employee, are you making efforts to find uh, arrangements uh, for someone or some kind of um, childcare program to take care of your children? and so you can return to work. Uh, so that would be the best course of action for an employer to take. Our guest on the Bill Kelly Show is employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro to Markin, employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg. Andrew, I'm wondering um, as this thing uh, unfolds, and again, we always talk about the finger quote new normal or whatever a sense of normalcy comes back into it, and everybody I talked to said, we're not going back to the way things were even when we get out of this pandemic. Uh, does this mean that employees should be getting new employment contracts uh, especially those who are working uh, away from home uh, when uh, they finally get back to, as I say, some sort of sense of, of normalcy. Is, is everything kind of tossed out the window and we're back to square one? No, absolutely not. So if, if you were put on a temporary layoff or you've been working from home from a part-time basis as an employee, you're, you're still, your terms of employment have been maintained. If you're now returning back to work, you, you absolutely do not have to sign a contract to get your job back. So that's something I see <clears throat> quite often uh, these days. So that's, you know, at the outset of the show, you asked me kind of how things have progressed over the pandemic. Yep. That's, that's a newer issue that's come up lately, which is as people return to work, their employers are requesting that they sign an employment agreement um, in order to return. And those employees absolutely do not have to sign anything, nor should they, because these employment agreements typically, almost always, contain restrictive terms that are going to be detrimental to you as an employee, and you do not have to sign it. So if, if anyone out there is listening and you know your employer has put a contract to you and said, if you want to come back from this layoff, we need you to sign this thing here, do not sign it, have it reviewed by an employment lawyer, because you definitely do not know necessarily what you're getting yourself into uh, nor do you have any obligation to sign it at all. I'm wondering, uh, for when it comes to people, full-time employees, that's a whole different ballgame. Nothing should uh, change there, correct? No, no, absolutely not. Nothing at all should change um, it, it, at all. Like if, the, if you're coming back and the terms of your employment are the same, if you're getting paid the same that you were uh, getting paid before, if your benefits are the same, if your job's the same, um, don't sign anything. You don't have to. The terms of your employment are already laid out, either in a written contract or simply by virtue of the fact that 
you know, once something occurs over time in an employment relationship, it becomes an implied term of your contract. So if you received $1,000 per week in pay for the last year, that's part of your contract, that you get $1,000 a week per pay. It, it doesn't matter that that's in writing or not. So uh, certainly, you know, be very, very wary as an employee if you're ever presented a contract. Um, <laughs> very seldom are they, are, is the employer giving you a contract because it's in your best interest. Let's put it that way. <laughs> oh, now you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering now, uh, the future, there's been a lot of talk now with uh, this area, with Hamilton uh, now into Stage 3, and as well as Niagara and Halton. The Toronto's not there yet, but probably, hopefully soon. There's a lot of talk about the future of restaurant and food service industry being at risk. I'm wondering about the implications for a failing industry for employees and employers. Like, let's say that somebody owns a restaurant bar, their number were dropping slowly and they know despite all best interest and all uh, efforts they're not going to make it what happens then (laughs) what happens is a lot of people are out of jobs i mean that's the reality and i know there's a big push by uh um restaurants across you know the country as a whole to figure out some kind of ways to get a break whether it be through taxes uh you know, whether it be through, you know, their, their cost for alcohol. I, I, I do understand that most restaurants, they, the, you know, number one, the margins are super slim. Uh, secondly, when, when they do profit, a lot of that is on alcohol sales. So I know a lot of them are trying to get, um, you know, a removal of alcohol taxes and, and things like that. But it's a scary time for, for restaurants. I mean, they were hard done to begin with where you know you needed things to be very very good in order to profit at all and now we're talking about a very diminished capacity of people sitting on a patio and obviously the patio season is going to dry up eventually and then (laughs) what do they do so it's very scary um especially for servers i mean the hard part about it is you know imagine you're a server and you're a career server you can make good money as a server uh if you work at at a nice restaurant and and you work, uh, you know, many hours and, you know, with tips, you can do pretty well. The problem is, you know, if, if restaurants start to close down and if there aren't jobs available and you lose your job as a server, what, what else are you going to do? If you've been a server for 20 years it's, and you can, you know, some people can make up to sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 as a server, what is your other option? What other job are you going to find that's going to pay you that type of money? when you have no training in any other industry and uh, this is what you've been doing for years. So it's very scary. Um, and even if, you know, you do lose your job as a server, what happens if the owner of the restaurant's forced to close the doors and they have no money anymore and they go bankrupt? You might not even receive a severance. So uh, hopefully the government does something to help some of these restaurants out uh, just to keep them afloat until, you know, knock on wood, there is a vaccine and things... Uh, start to really go back to normal because uh, otherwise you know it looks like many many employees in the restaurant industry are going to be at risk to lose their job you know it's interesting andrew too i was talking with a, a local um, restaurant owner here in hamilton where we go on occasion and uh, and uh, pick up a meal um go in order it and take it out i was talking to him and i said well what about uh, getting ready to come back he said a lot of his staff don't want to come back because they want to stay at home and collect syrup so from uh employee standpoint if that person doesn't want to come back basically does that employer say okay well here's the offer and if you don't want to come back we'll find somebody else 
Yeah, by by all means, if the empl- if the employee simply doesn't want to come back because they want to collect CERB and that's in their best interest, you can treat that as that employee is abandoning their job. Like at, at, toward the beginning of the show, we discussed that there are a couple of valid reasons why you might be able to refuse work, but if it's simply because you want to get the CERB benefit, uh, that's not going to cut it. So you can treat that individual as having abandoned their job. And I imagine right now there's a great number of uh, servers that are without work that are looking for work um, to, to replace that individual with. So, you know, it is tough. I mean, what's also tough about the CERB benefit is the qualification to, to become eligible for the benefit is that you had to make $5,000 in the previous year, Right. So it's possible that as an employee, you may you could make $300 a week working part-time, okay? Right. And then you lose your job because of COVID, but now all of a sudden, the CERB benefit is paying you 500 a week. So even though you used to make 300 a week working part-time, you're now earning 500 a week. So why would you want to go back to work when you're making $200 more per week under the CERB benefit? Um than when you had actually been working for your money, right? Uh, the, the one thing I would point out to these employees, though, if you're refusing a, a, an offer to return to work, you know you won't, you, will, you no longer qualify for the CERB benefit because you can no longer say that the reason you're not working is due to COVID. You have an offer to return on the table. You're able to return. And as a result, if you decline that offer to return and continue receiving the CERB benefit, the government might come at you and, and request that money back and also penalize you. So it's something that an employee has to consider as well. A fascinating look, our weekly look at what's going on as far as uh, employers and employees and uh, labor during COVID-19. As always, uh, on a Wednesday, we uh, thank our guest, Andrew Goldberg, from Sanfiro Tumarkin, uh, employment lawyer. Uh, thanks very much for the update. And, you know, I, I, I just hope, Andrew, for all of our sakes, that this thing shakes down a little bit more. Every Everybody's behaving themselves here. I can't even imagine what they're going through in the States down there. So let's just be thankful that uh, everybody's behaving themselves here. Thank you very much for the time. Appreciate it. Of course. uh, My pleasure. Uh, There you have it. Andrew um, Goldberg, as we talked about the employment law and and people who may want to come back to work, people who don't want to come back to work, make sure that you have your legal uh, things in order before you make any type of decision. And that's the message. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Edmonton Eskimos made it official. They are dropping Eskimo from their team name. Janice Agrios, the chair of the club's board of directors, said while many fans were committed to keeping the name, others are increasingly uncomfortable with it. Changing our name will not change our core identity or the values we stand for. Resilience, strength, respect, and community. A great team for a great city. The exciting but tough part comes next, finding a new name for this great organization. Now, until a new name is found, it'll be referred to as the Double E football team and the Edmonton football team. Uh, The color scheme will stay the same. We assume team president and CEO Chris Preston said the search is on for a new name and will include consultations with the Inuit. Our intent is... To engage in the northern communities, especially in the western Arctic, where we have made deep and long-lasting relationships. Uh, in terms of what we'll do going forward around our name in those discussions, I think it would make perfect sense to do so. 
We have engaged them through the process throughout the last three years around our name specifically. And I think it would make sense for, for us to have those same conversations for us around a new name as well. Neil, no timeline for a new name. Well, it's a discussion that uh, has been going on for quite some time. And joining us to talk about this is the managing editor and feature writer with The Athletic, Sean Fitzgerald. Fitzy, it's been a while. First of all, I hope you're safe and healthy and everything's good. Yeah, no, it's strange to be talking to you and not seeing the mustache. It's been that long. <laughs> you still have the mustache. I need to know. I can't tell on the right. Uh, no, I do not. I shaved that several years ago because I got really tired of people telling me I look like Eugene Levy. But, oh, but, you know what? Without the mustache, I'm just going to hang up. And look <laughs> anyway, so off the top, you know, it's <laughs> you know we uh, talk about uh, the name uh, being changed, but they're going to keep the logo EE on, on the helmet. So, so that tells me that if they want to get away from the Edmonton Eskimos, if they keep the EE on the helmet, they're not really getting away from it, are they? Well, I mean, it's just a logo, right? When you get down to it, um, it's the name that you know Edmonton didn't have the iconography that you know the Washington football team did, or that you know the the Cleveland baseball team does. So, you know, on that level, on that very superficial level, um, but not financially inconsequential level. On that level, yeah, keeping the EE. So you just have to sort of crack open the dictionary and maybe look at the other E names, Elks, Emus. Um, I have no idea. But, yeah, I mean, that part they've sort of been talking about through the process that, you know, things like branding, which is that great marketing buzzword that's sort of gotten into mainstream culture, that that does have a real financial cost. That if you, you were to, say, change your name and your, your color scheme and your logo and, you know, become the Edmonton Rough Riders, that would cost a lot of money, one, for the redesign, but two, to sort of help that brand get back out into the community when, you know, everybody in Edmonton's been used to, to one name for the better part of a century. You know, it's interesting because that name has been uh, part of uh, Eskimos lore. Uh, name change comes after more than 70 years after the team was founded in 1949. I found it interesting that uh, the uh, Edmonton Football Club, which we'll call it now going forward, said that while a lot of people thought that it was a good move, there were some that thought that it wasn't a good move. I'm wondering maybe demographically, do you think that's the case where the, if you will, the older demographic uh, don't like to change things the way they are because it's a part of history and why not keep the name? Well, the name itself actually goes back quite a bit further. It goes back to you know the, the late 19th century. Now, the legend, which I've never been able to confirm, is that uh, a Calgary reporter uh, was kind of up in arms after the local rugby team lost to a team from Edmonton and referred to them offhandedly as Esquimo. Uh, which is obviously the French version for for the Eskimos, um, and that you know Edmonton just sort of embraced it. Now the the, the term Eskimos was used for local baseball teams, uh, local hockey teams, uh, and then the rugby team formally adopted it in 1908, and and that was back when you know the, the North Pole was very much in the news. It was on the front page of the New York Times regularly because you know there were two very well financed parties racing to be the quote unquote first to the North Pole. So um, it was a bit like you know, maybe, I don't know, say a, a local basketball team being named after a dinosaur because a dinosaur movie happened to be popular in the mid-90s. It's, it was a very popular in-the-news sort of name back then. And, and yeah, it does seem to be a demographic thing that, you know, older, older members of the community seem to be, generally speaking, 
less likely um, to one care or two um, be be offended by it. That that shouldn't be, you know, uh, it should be mistaken for a lack of consensus, meaning that you can't change the name. I mean, certainly you don't have to look very far around before you can see other examples of that. I mean, look at the, the United Kingdom and how overwhelmingly older voters voted in favor of uh, leaving the European Union while younger voters overwhelmingly voted to stay. The generational divides in politics is, is nothing that's, that's really uncommon. So we shouldn't be super surprised here. Our guest on the Bill Kelly Show, Ted Michaels, filling in for Bill, is uh, the managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic, Sean Fitzgerald, talking about the name change of the Edmonton Football Club. And I guess, Sean, we should have known that uh, it was going to come to uh, a head when, uh, I guess, a couple of weeks ago, one of the uh, Eskimo uh, prime sponsors, the title sponsor, uh, said, you know what, we're going to uh, basically, in so many words, rethink and revisit our relationship with the football team at that point you would think that you know what they thought to themselves maybe we should probably investigate this a little further because up until then i i'm not sure that they had even thought that this was uh, as big of a problem as it became well i mean the calls for the name change go back you know to the 1970s as early as i think 1971 is when it made news in edmonton that you know, this name isn't acceptable or as universally acceptable as you may think it is. And and over the years, that course has sort of grown to, you know, an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen in 2015. Um, and, and that movement only continued to gather steam, especially with the, the growth of social media, where, you know, more and more people had a voice and a forum and um, could sort of, sort of exert um, political pressure that way. That, yeah, I mean, the sponsors, and it's the same in Washington with the NFL team, the sponsors are going to get credit here um, for using that financial might. You know, in Washington, it's Federal Express for pull, threatening to pull its name off the stadium. And, and certainly here in Canada, it's, it's some of those corporations threatening um, to, to sever ties with the CFL team. But, I mean, what you can't overlook is the years and years of, of, of vocal opposition to the name and, the, you know, the, the demand for change that goes back long before these companies found their voice. So I'm wondering in your uh, work and uh, your sources and everybody, you know, it's funny because when we think back to when Ottawa was going to use the term red blacks, that was, that got out. I don't know if it was strategically placed or not. A lot of us kind of went, we we poo-pooed it, red blacks. No, I don't like that name. And then it kind of took took on uh, traction and uh, then people became very used to it. In this case, uh, do your sources uh, have any type of indication what the new name will be, hopefully not the Edmonton Football Club going forward? The Edmonton CFLers, in tribute of the old Baltimore Stallions. Oh, geez. Um, No, I mean, they've said that they're opening it up. They're going to solicit fan input. Um, You know, Edmonton has applied for a trademark. I'm talking about the football team for Empire. Um, the Edmonton Empire, um, not necessarily registered as a trademark for a football team, but a whole bunch of merchandise and other things. And that's been registered, and the application has been made with the Canadian government. So it really could be anything. Um, Edmonton Empire is a bit of an awkward, I think, fit for a bunch of different reasons. So, you know, if you take them at their word, they're throwing the doors wide open suggestions. Well, you know, uh, it is the capital of Alberta, so I, I don't know want to, if you want to use this one because it ties in with the Washington Capitals, but the Edmonton Capitals, I don't know. I'm just tossing it out there. Like, it's, it's, in, it's nice to actually sit down and have this conversation and talk to people about what the name should be, but I would say, Sean, at some point, you can't please everybody. Some people are going to say that's a great name, and some are going to say, no, what are you thinking? 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's going to take time. Um, And, you know, if they don't get the shortened season off, they could have plenty of time on their hands. Um, Yeah, I I mean, marketing and market research costs money and takes a lot of time. But, you know, it's absolutely worth it and necessary in this case, because there's there's no way that that team can continue with that name for very much longer. And, you know, it is interesting that when uh, we do uh, talk about getting back to the CFL, we'll talk about that in a moment, when you play does resume, how many people will automatically, just because they've called it this for years, say that the Edmonton Eskimos are playing the Tiger Cats as opposed to the Edmonton Football Club? Old habits are hard to break. Yeah, sure. I mean, and probably still some people who call the Ottawa franchise the Rough Riders (laughs) or the Renegades. Yeah. um, Yeah, I mean, I suppose so, but... You know, this is real, tangible change. It's been years in the making. So I, I think a, I think a lot of folks will be, you know, okay to call it the Edmonton football team or, or whatever it is we're going to call them for short, uh, in the short term. Sean, just before we wrap up, uh, we had Bob Irving on the air yesterday before the announcement came out talking about Winnipeg possibly being chosen as a hub city. Well, late yesterday afternoon, the CFL made the announcement that Winnipeg is the hub city for a possible CFL season. I would suggest... Probably that's the best choice going forward. Yeah, I mean, who knows with this with this virus? It's it's shown a remarkable ability to undo the best of all human intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that certainly with you know the the American leagues that have picked you know Florida as the hub, um, and with the infection rates going through the roof there. I mean, there's so many questions. Like, can you have players come up from the U.S. and, and quarantine? Um, you know, how will that work? Can can we keep, I'm talking we as Canadians, um, keep the infection rate down? We've seen, you know, rebounds in Ontario and warnings in British Columbia. What happens if it starts to go up and we need to shut down? And, you know, if we do need to shut down again, you know, how can we justify having, you know, nine CFL teams playing in one stadium? And the other part, too, as, you know, Bob pointed out, for somebody, for example, let's just say it's Ottawa. So now you have uh, everybody coming in from Ottawa that, you know, of course, the players and team personnel, uh, I would suggest some of the media that cover Ottawa coming in and staying in Winnipeg in a bubble for X number of weeks. I mean, it doesn't matter what city you're in. Uh, I, I would think at some point you would want to, you know, kind of get out of that habit because it can be a little uh, emotionally draining. Yeah, and you're going to see that too in, in in Toronto and Edmonton for the NHL bubbles. That it is just it's. I mean, it, I have two small kids, so the idea of spending three months in a very quiet hotel room is very, very appealing to me right now. But you know, if you're in your 20s and you know you're in the, the peak physical fitness and you're used to living life a certain way, that's going to seem like a real burden. If not at first, then certainly over a long period of time. So. That will be a challenge, and not just for the CFL, but for everybody who's you know going to be competing and trying to live in one of these bubbles across North America. Well, I know that tomorrow was a deadline that there was supposed to be uh, an agreement, hopefully in place between the CFL and the CFLPA. I asked Bob Irving this question yesterday. He wasn't very optimistic when it comes to you. Uh, your optimism about A, reaching an agreement, and then B, there being a CFL season this year? It's going to be tough. I mean, what are you, what are you playing for that... If it's a six-game season and you're an American player coming up um, after taxes, after the exchange rate, you're not making a lot of money. So, you know, at that point, and especially if you do have a family to feed, what is your incentive to play? If you're only playing for six weeks in a regular season and no guarantee of going anywhere after that, then, you know, if you're talking about a take-home of $9,000 U.S., why? Why would you do it? 
Absolutely. All right, we'll keep uh, an eye on that decision coming down tomorrow. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor, the feature writer with The Athletic. Now that you off the top mention them, the mustache, I may have to grow it back. It's a, it, it may be a, a little you know white or gray, but I may have to grow it back just so you can recognize me when we finally get a chance to say hi. If you did that for me, Ted, I would be honored. That would be the greatest <laughs> honor of my entire life. Have another coffee shot. <laughs> Thanks for that. Uh, appreciate it, Fitzy. Talk to you soon. Great talking to you, Ted. All right. Bye-bye. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Tad Michaels. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free. So you never miss an opportunity. Make sure that you rate it and review it.